Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people, and when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content, too, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer, and don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is delivered to your head. This is sound waves vibrating in your general direction. Thanks for showing up. Thanks for tuning in. It's good to be with you. I have a bit of a chest cold, so my voice is a little bit, I feel like it's a little bit deeper than usual, which I enjoy. It makes me feel a little bit more virile and masculine. Uh, so I figured I would start by asking you the following question. Would you like to hear some of my worries? Would you? Does that sound good? Would you like to hear some of my concerns? Does that sound appealing? Can you imagine me, for example, uh, lying in bed late at night in the dark, looking up at the ceiling and thinking to myself, uh, oh, Jesus, I'm a podcaster. I podcast. Oh, Jesus, I'm a writer. 
with a strange and very specific sensibility that might, in the end, only appeal to 4,327 people in the entire world. Oh, Jesus, I am nursing a middling talent. Oh, Jesus, the publishing industry is imploding. Is it imploding? Oh, Jesus, it's every man for himself. Oh, Jesus, uh, are writers just a bunch of quietly preening, angry nerd egomaniacs hell-bent on convincing the world that they each respectively have a very big soul, capital V, capital B, capital S, and need to assert the contents of that soul powerfully on the universe. Can you imagine me in the desert? Can you imagine me talking to a coyote that is actually a mirage? Can you imagine me on Sunset Boulevard watching the sunrise? Can you imagine me wondering why palm trees in Los Angeles do not yield coconuts? Do they yield coconuts? Do they? Can you imagine me reminding myself to stay hydrated? Can you imagine me sitting here late at night at my desk trying to come up uh, with something to say, checking my iTunes reviews compulsively, listening to bad music, staring at myself in the mirror, listening to more bad music, trying to get myself into the proper headspace? To do this monologue. And that's honestly what I do. <laughs> that's my secret. You want to know if, if you want to know my secret, if you want to know uh, my ritual, how I loosen my brain up, how I try desperately to find some kind of humor, if you want to uh, know how I try to find my muse, then uh, all you need to know uh, is that uh, it's all about bad music. If you want to prepare yourself to write, if you want to not take life too seriously, then you need to listen to this song or something like it. You need to cultivate an entire library of songs like this song. Kissing you was not what I had planned And now I'm not so sure just where I stand That's Jack Wagner. Uh, For those of you who don't know, that's a song called All I Need. That is the uh, 1980s. That is a soap opera star trying to become a pop star. Look it up, people, if you haven't heard of it yet. It's Jack Wagner, and try to come to grips with that. Try to sit Indian style on shag carpeting and put that song on your stereo system and turn the volume up. Do you understand what I'm saying? Can you feel uh, my vibration? Can you seriously feel it in your solar plexus, in your uh, perineum? I'm a podcaster. I have a very specific appeal. And with your help, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this show can become a cultural tornado. It can overturn 18-wheelers. It can send milk cows flying a country mile. Do you understand me? It can shake the very soul of our nation. Are you with me? Are you alive with excitement? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, 
and The Occasional Triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Erica Ray. I have known her for years. She is the tireless nonfiction editor at thenervousbreakdown.com, my uh, my online culture magazine and literary community. And she is now on the verge of publishing her first book, her debut memoir. It is just days away. Ladies and gentlemen, it is called Devangelical, and it will be available from Emergency Press, uh, the great, great independent press run by Brian Tomasevich on December 11th, December 11th, 2012. It's called Devangelical. It's a memoir. I am thrilled for Erica, and I'm just uh, really, really happy to have her here on this program to talk about the new book, which all of you should uh, go by immediately and foist upon your relatives. So here we go. This here is Erica Ray, the author of Devangelical. I am in the Rocky Mountains at 8,700 feet, just to the west of Boulder, and I am standing in a cabin in the woods bordering on the Rocky Mountain National Forest. I'm in a. Uh, I'm actually right next to a chicken yard, so you might hear some strange noises in the background. So wait, do you have? Uh, do you have? Do you have like domestic chickens? Is that what's happening? We do. We've got twelve lovely ladies out and back. And they like put what they you they provide your family with eggs, and then they're also <laughs> yeah, just eggs. Okay. They're not. They're not. Yeah, they're all hens. They're all little ladies. So. And, and they're, do, yeah. you mean, do you treat them as pets or are these, is this livestock? What's happening with them? No, no, I, I can't. I actually tried. I love animals. I'm a, I'm a big animal lover. I have two dogs and, um, you know, it, but the chickens, I feel very differently about them. They're, they are kind of like um, dinosaurs with feathers. And um, I'll, I'll never forget when I first um, got them, uh, somebody warned me. They said, whatever you do, um, don't fall in a coma in the pen because they will eat absolutely anything. So the first things to go will be lips and eyeballs. <laughs> Never forget that, lips and eyeballs. Oh, my God. So, See, this is yeah. the thing, you know. No, you, you think like, you know, sometimes I look at my dog and I'm like, wow, he really loves me. But yeah. when it comes to animals, like he might just think like that's the guy who gives me food. And right. like I sometimes wonder too, like if, I, if it, like the two of us were out in the woods, not that I would ever be out in the woods with my dog because – you know, he's a French bulldog and he's like the most unathletic dog ever. But um, <laughs> if something were to happen to me, would he eat me right. if we were stranded? Right. I kind of think he would. Right. Maybe. But, you know, they're, I think dogs are more capable of something. Call it love. 
Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I, 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 chickens. I, I, they I just, they eye you. They're cold. It's like they're almost soulless. There's something. <laughs> Other chicken lovers out there are going to hate me for saying that, but I, I just don't feel it with them. You don't feel the warmth. Mm-mm. Okay. I don't. Okay. And so you're at 8,700 feet, which is, uh, that's, that's a high elevation. Yes, it is. It is. Um, it so, took some practice to get up here, some training. Okay. And are you like, are you, a re- you're not a recluse though. You, you know, I've known you for years. No, no, I love being around people and I love hanging around in the city. Um, my husband moved us up here, um, initially because, well, he loves being out in nature and, um, the mountains. So it was kind of one of those, um, negotiations, <laughs> we'll call it a negotiation in marriage. Um, and, and basically we were going to be up here for two years. And uh, that has now turned into 12. <laughs> so, but fortunately, we're, we're in a neighborhood. There are a lot of people around, and I've got some of my dearest friends that live up here now. So, okay, so um, let me ask you yeah. something. Like, because you live up here in this like, you know, fairly isolated situation, even though you know, I don't want to overstate it because, you, like you said, there's like lots of different houses, and you have a neighborhood, and it's not like you're up there mm-hmm. in a cabin by yourself. But you are in a, in a very small community. And yes. what I want to know, because I live in Los Angeles, which is just a, a madhouse, it's the opposite experience, you know, uh, mm-hmm. is, do you feel like a strong sense of, of connectivity with your neighbors? Are you constantly having people over? Is it like happier because you have, uh, you know, some sort of connection with people as opposed to being isolated in some giant metropolis where there's the paradox of having people everywhere, but having no real sense of, uh, you know, connection with them. That's- that's a really interesting question. Yeah, I think the people that you know up here become uh, dearer to you, perhaps. I don't know if that's really true. But we certainly do develop a strong connection, and especially um, probably more so in the summer, spring, and fall. Winter, we all kind of turn into a bunch of recluses. That's partly because we can't get up each other's driveways. Right. So, well, so there's what not about, a lot of visiting. Well, okay, so what about when you don't like somebody? Then you're stuck with them. Does that ever happen? Well, that's true. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Okay. So oh yeah! You got neighbors you loathe. We won't. We, I won't ask you to name them. <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't say too much about them. But <laughs> um, so let's talk. I mean, uh, you know, for those who are listening, uh, Erica and I have known each other for years. She works as an editor on the Nervous Breakdown, and I've watched you progress, um, you know, through the publication process with this book. And so I want you to talk a bit about uh, how that went because I know it was a bit of an arduous path for you. Yes, it has been a um, a long time coming. Um, basically, it's taken me since about, oh, I'd say 1997 to publish a book. And um, I know you know this, but um, this is my eighth book to write. Um, it's my first publication. So it's been a long time in coming. So I'm very excited. Okay, so uh, eight books. You've written eight manuscripts. Yeah. This is the eighth, and it worked. Yeah, this one worked, and that is not to say that the first few were worth publishing. I want to make that very clear. <laughs> yeah, but still, but still, like just because I, you know, anybody who's tried to do this and anybody who's gone through uh, the full process of getting an entire manuscript, uh, you know, into shape or getting the words on the page knows how difficult it is and that that alone is an achievement. Um, but what I want to know is, is that having not had publication success that many times consecutively where did you find the will to keep working? Like, did you ever find yourself thinking, I'm going to quit, like, screw this, I'm not cut out for this, or did you always believe it was going to happen? It's a really good question. Um, 
I have never felt like I wanted to quit. And that seems really strange because, you know, people talk about, you know, ooh, I've had 20 rejections, 30 rejections, et cetera. And I've probably had hundreds of rejections at this point. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just one of those things I, I'm compelled to write. I can't seem to help myself. Um, it must be just the way I process. Well, so I, I love to do it. Okay. Just something. Yeah. Is, it, is it enjoyable for you always? Like, do you, do you find it? Like, are you one of the writers? Because I think they're... You know, what you just said is par for the course for almost, I, mean, I think, everybody that I've talked yeah. to on the show. When you're a writer, yeah. you have it. You either have the bug or you don't. And if you have it, yeah. you, you can't shut it off. But yeah. one thing I've noticed is that I think some writers, or I think the, the writers that I've talked with, uh, you know, process the act of writing differently. And for some of them, it is, it is truly like a joy or is mostly mm-hmm. a joy. And then for others, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like this excruciating necessity or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. So... Like, how right. is it for you? Is it truly just fun when you sit down and you get all giddy and excited? Or is it one of those things where it, it kind of like it, it's fun to have done it as opposed to it's fun to do it? I'd say it's both. It really depends on uh, what my mood is. Um, I'm a very disciplined writer, so um, I kind of have a pay-to-day goal. And that seems like such a small goal. But, um, you know, on those days where you don't feel like writing, at least it's only a page, right? So, um, and that adds up. So, um, and most of the time too, uh, I don't stop at a page. So if I'm really in the mood, I can keep going, but at least I sit down if I can get past that first bit. And sometimes that first page is, is excruciating. That is true. Uh, other times though, I come down and I'm just giggling before I start cause I'm so excited to get something down, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Some days are just better yeah. than others, but you just, I think like you, you, like, you know, I'm a person who, who has to be disciplined when I'm in it and I'm working on a book. Like it can't just be when I feel like it. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that, uh, and, you know, tell me if this is the case with you, is that some days when you don't feel like writing, you get some pretty good writing done. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, you know, there's always editing. I'm not the type of person to get hung up on getting the phrase perfect the first time. Um, I think Stephen King said uh, something along the lines of, you write the first draft for yourself and the second draft for your audience. Um, I would add to that probably the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth draft. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, you know that first that first time around is just getting things out there, and you know, and, and I'm like you, I've got kids, I've got three kids, and um, you know, very busy running a business from the home, and um, one of my children, we actually do online school from home, so. Um, Busy person, so we, I just have to tuck it in where I can. I drink a lot of coffee at night. Okay, so let's talk about how you actually get the work done because <laughs> you mentioned that you're disciplined. And are you an everyday writer or is it every day if you can be? Yeah. Okay, yeah. and you do it late at night? Most Mostly. If I, can get, if I can get a page off in the morning, that's great because then I can usually get quite a bit more done during the day. Um, but, but yeah, definitely at night once I put the kids down, uh, I drink a cup of coffee right about dinner time so that it'll kick in about the time I'm putting them down. And then I try to stay up somewhere between 11 and midnight every night at uh, least and, so and that co- I get a couple co- hours in. Coffee is as strong as you go. Like you don't use it. You're not like one of those Adderall writers or anything. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm interested no. to try that. I think like this is the thing about it though. I've been, I've been thinking about this because there are a lot of writers out there and a lot of people in general who are using it. And like, it might be, it's like juicing, you know, like you've got like yeah. a heightened concentration, more energy you can sustain. Huh. I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, it's probably not good for you over the long term if you use it too much, but I mean, you I know. should try it. Yeah. I should, I should try it. There's that five hour energy, energy drink too, that Joan Rivers is always touting on the radio. <laughs> That's right. I mean, if it works for her. Yeah. I mean, I, there's something to saying. it, I think. I mean, it just could be, I feel like. 
you know, especially with kids, there's the sleep issue and then there's the concentration yeah. issue and the, and the focus yeah. that it requires. And I just wonder if you had like, you know, a chemical additive that exceeded caffeine that if they, well, to be fair, I do boost sometimes with vitamin C. You do. You're so, is that weird? Yeah. You're so dangerous. It's just, I know I, <laughs> I live on the edge. I'm telling you, but no, seriously, those little 500 milligram chewable tablets. Yeah. I'm serious. They work. Okay. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try anything. I'll do whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about. I want to talk uh, about another aspect of your life as it pertains to discipline, because I think they might be tied together. Like, um, and forgive me if I if I don't have all the details of of this memory intact. But you have a martial arts background, correct? I I do. This is one of the things I started in grad school. It was kind of maybe my coming out into the world sort of um, thing that I did. <laughs> okay. To talk about yeah. this. Okay. Um, well, basically, I was living on a little island off the coast of Hong Kong uh, called Lama Island. And, and, and wait, why were you there again? I was going to grad school in Hong Kong. Oh, that's right. Okay. So, grad school in Hong Kong. And what were you studying? Was this the. I was doing a master's in post colonial literature and linguistics. Very useful. Okay, so how did you wind, how did you wind up in this? How did you wind up on an island off the coast of Hong Kong? Um, it's it's such a weird, convoluted story. I mean, basically, um, it, it I consult my my husband and I have been married a very long time. We've been married since um, since I was nineteen, and um, so it's going on twenty years for us now. But um, he uh, he had gotten a position there to do his PhD work at the University of Hong Kong. So I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, I want to do my grad work too, because um, I kind of just had always been raised believing that that's what I would do. Both my parents have PhDs, and I thought, well, I'll do it too. And um, I applied, and then I didn't get in. So um, I kind of just kept at them, and they put me on a wait list, and what do you know, I got in. That seems to be the story of my life with publishing <laughs> in grad school. So... Um, Anyway, I, I got in. Uh, we didn't want to live on the main island there on Hong Kong Island because it was just too pricey, basically. And you'd get this tiny little apartment. Um, I'll never forget, we had this real estate agent that took us around when we first moved there. And we were in this little tiny box of an apartment. And we were way up high, like maybe, I don't know, 18 floors up in one of those high rises. And um, she pointed out the window and she gave us a higher price than what had been advertised. And, and we kind of took her to task on it. We're like, well, why is it higher? And she pointed out the window and there was this it, you could see way down below, there was this little tiny tree that you could see by another building. And, and she said, you can see a tree. The price <laughs> went up. Oh, my God. So we're like, okay. So um, we <laughs> we just gave up. And um, we, we started asking around. And it turns out there was this whole kind of Western community that was living on this little backpacker island called Lama Island. So um, a lot of Europeans and Australians and mostly not Americans. Most of the Americans lived on Hong Kong Island with... Um, really good packages, like they had maids and hired cars and all that sort of thing. But that was not exactly our circumstances. So, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so we moved on this little island called Lama, and um, there were ten thousand people on the island. No cars allowed. Um, there were no buildings higher than three stories, and about three thousand of that ten thousand were Westerners. So we kind of lived um, juxtaposed between these this really ancient civilization that was on there, they could trace their roots back 2,000 years on the island. And it was um, once even a matriarchal society. You could still see the remnants of that on there. It was really interesting. Um, and then and then these just like wild and crazy partying you know, Europeans. And <laughs> so it was, it was really odd um, sort of balance, 
if you want to call it that. And, and you started doing, and this is where you started practicing martial arts. I did. I met I met a, a man there named Jack Cummins, and he um, he took me on as a student, and he had been studying under uh, Yip Man. Um, so that was kind of exciting. And um, so basically, uh, we would we'd meet a couple times a week. We went up to this uh, a Buddhist temple, and we would. Um, be up there and he would train us and sometimes we'd go out on the beach and um, do our forms and our drills it was, okay. it was beautiful it was actually really lovely wow so how good did you get uh, you know i i um i never really got that good i, I studied for about seven years and I, I changed disciplines a bunch um i did compete and won a few things um you know, at the competitions, but I mean, never, never was I excellent at it. I'm a, I'm a Gemini. Hey, (laughs) Jack of all trades, master of none. Um, but I loved it. And I, and I, I loved, um, kind of knowing what my limits were. And, um, I'll never forget when I moved back to the United States, I wanted to, um, continue that. And I couldn't find the sort of class that was, um, similar. So I ended up going under an, another another man named Stuart Lopper, who um, was a 1976 boxing champion, just U.S. style boxing, but he had gone into martial arts and um, he started training me in his class. And I remember he, he was just so tough. They, they did uh, two rule fighting there. And um, the first rule was there were no rules. The second rule was you couldn't change the first rule. So um, they kind of really uh, put me in my place quickly. I remember being dropped to the ground several times, winded, um, bloody nose, um, all sorts of things. And they basically trained me to not cry like a little baby and <laughs> take it or fight. So, um, so you know, it was fun. And it, I guess it toughened me up. It definitely taught me my limits. So. See, no, but see, okay, a couple things that I'm starting to see some themes emerge. First of all, you and your husband, despite being near metropolitan areas, often wind up living in small communities removed from... Um, but you don't see what I'm saying? And in Hong Kong, you, you went up on that island. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, you're probably right. And it probably financially, it has something to do with finances, too. I mean, because, you know, the, the farther out you go, things are usually a little less right. pricey. Right, so, right. Yeah. And then, and then but it's it, true. We love, we love being out a little, too, I guess. That is true. Well, but you know what? But, it's not so bad. You get the best of both worlds because you live away from the yeah. crazy, but you, you're close to the crazy. You don't, you know, it's like. That's true. That's true. I took a ferry into school, every, you know, every day and. Then you'd have to walk through it and take, you know, get all that. So both worlds. Okay. Okay. So that's one theme. The second theme that Mm -hmm. I'm seeing is this persistence that you have and this toughness, like martial arts being kind of like a good metaphor for it. You know, the fact that you went through, um, you know, all these different attempts at getting published before finally, you know, um, getting de-evangelical into print. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, do you feel like, would it be an overstatement to say that like this martial arts training had some impact on your approach to writing and your approach to publishing and your resilience or was that there to begin with that's a really good question maybe it was there a little bit um but i have to say too that a lot of the martial arts also um was about letting me get over being afraid of things you know just knowing my limits um and pushing the limits so maybe maybe there is something to that persistence thing but um i I grew up with a lot of fear i grew up um well, you know, you read the book. I, I grew up with um, believing, you know, that there were demons in the room with me at any given time trying to steal my soul. And um, it was a, kind of this fear of um, the unseen and slipping away into the flames, so to speak. So um, I think I just had to get over that. So I, I challenged myself to do it, you know. Yeah. 
That's good though. That yeah. makes sense. I mean, and I feel like, uh, there are worse ways to do it. You know, it seems like martial arts would be a healthy way to attack those kinds yeah. of things. Right. Right. Um, no serious injuries. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> one would hope. Like, did you ever, did you ever find yourself getting into an actual fight? Have you ever been in like the actual hand to hand combat? Uh, you know, I've, I've broken up fights at bars. I'm, I'm certainly not the type of person to go in and start stuff with people. Um, although one time I did walk off the street and join a, um, it was one, it was fight night. It was in Boulder and they had a boxing ring set up and they had their, you know, champions and it's something they did every weekend. And I just kind of walked in off the street and decided to do it. So that was fun. It was a little, you know, less rule bound. So, so that was fun. I, I, kind of, you know, got put in my place pretty quickly until something inside clicked and turned things around. But yeah, it was, it was crazy. But as for real fights, no. no. Okay. So let me ask you this, cause I have no martial arts training. Um, <laughs> I've never even been in a fist fight in my life. Like, could you kick my ass? <laughs> uh, it might depend on how much you've had to drink. Okay. For me. If I'm yeah. sober, if like, let's just say we're both sober. Uh, we meet <laughs> on the street and all of a sudden I throw a punch. Am I a dead man? I have no idea. I, my, 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 my gut reaction would be to hit back and to yeah. block you. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Probably kick somewhere. All right. So sensitive. let's get into, uh, let's get into your life and let's get into this book. I want to hear about, um, like, why don't you start at the beginning? Cause you know, for listeners who haven't read, like give us a little, like a broad overview of the book and, uh, and then we'll get into the specifics. Okay, so Devangelical is a humor memoir, um, and it's basically about my life growing up in a fundamentalist corner of the evangelical church, and then how I kind of got out of that. And so, yeah, that's basically the overview. Yeah, okay, so you were, you were born to evangelical Christian parents. Yes, and, you know, they, they were both academic Christians, so um, they were actually pretty even um, as far as all that goes. Um, it was kind of me pushing the envelope, and uh, really, I think it must have been maybe a teenage phase, but I, I can certainly trace it to before that. But um, it, there was, a, you know, how there was just something inside of me that wanted to be different. I wanted to be radical, basically get the extra credit round. So um, it, it probably took it to a different level than so, they had ever intended. So, so you, you, your faith and your, um, you know, uh, embrace of the faith exceeded your parents. Um, I would say not that my faith exceeded theirs. Um, probably the way I lived it was different. It was more intense. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are so many things I can point to, um, and I talk about a lot of this in the book. But, you know, I, I would go on witnessing trips to, I, m- I remember one time um, an old Sunday school teacher of mine called me up and asked me if I wanted to go do something extraordinary. And I was like, on it, you know, yeah, yeah. So um, I went with him and a couple other kids from my youth group, and we went to a metaphysical fair in downtown Colorado Springs. And basically, you know, there are thousands of people there and, you know, people walking around, um, you know, in, in capes, looking like warlocks and um, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of um, flowing skirts, you know, Stevie Nicks style, that sort of thing. New Agers, you know, like we call them New Agers. Right. And um, so basically we went, you know, on this kind of um, infiltration mission sort of thing. Yeah, you know, that that would be just one example <laughs> of many. But you know, it was just always this kind of trying to um, trying to catch people before they fell into the fiery pit, basically. So, 
very worried about everyone else's soul. Wow. Okay. So when you, okay, go back to the beginning of your um, self concept with this. Like, like how old were you when you started to have an attachment to the you know to this religion and and how did you perceive it? Do you know what I'm saying? Because like I think back to my own youth. I was raised yeah. Catholic and like. You know, I remember thinking like, okay, Jesus, and I believe the adults in my life. And I was like, all right, there's this Jesus guy and he's watching me at all times. And, you know, and mm-hmm. you get this information and, um, you know, like what, how did it work for you? Like, I could say, it sounds like maybe yours was a little bit more intense or supernatural. Like uh, talk about, you know, evangelical sure. fundamental Christian. Sure. Upbringing. I mean, I, certainly I was, I was raised in it. Um, the, the particular church that I was raised in, um, we had a lot of rules. So um, they had actually changed um, one rule before, you know, I hit puberty and that was that you could wear red to church. So that, you know, thank God for that. But, um, you know, a lot of things were a sin, you know, you couldn't cuss, you couldn't smoke, um, drinking, even a glass of wine was a sin. Um, Watching a movie in a movie theater was not allowed in the church. Um, There there were just all these kind of little things. We weren't allowed to go dancing um, or even dance at home. Um, So, I'll never forget, even when I was in college, because I went to a college in that same denomination, um, there was a girl who was um, in, she was basically on track to become a famous ballerina, and she was apparently fabulous. Well, when she decided to convert and came over to this denomination, she gave all of that up because she saw that it was sinful. And I remember that, you know, this this was a time in my life where I was starting to look at this whole you know, this whole map is kind of questionable. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, wow, you've got to be kidding me. You know, so there, there were just little things like that that started to pick away at me. But So, I mean, they, yeah, they're like, like the absolute denial of all sense, like sensual pleasure or sensory pleasure. Or yeah, 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 of course. Sex was a huge issue of that, uh, part of that issue um, too. You know, it, it was not allowed at all. So there was this kind of weird... Um, it seems like most of our meetings, you know, when I'd go to youth group, that sort of thing, we had a lot of the sex talk, you know, you should be abstaining, all this sort of thing, be hot for God, not for boys, um, <laughs> that sort of thing. So oh <laughs> that was God. a big part of it, almost trying to rechannel that um, that passion into God. And I think in a lot of ways it worked. Um, now, I should say, too, I think a lot, um, there was probably something that happened in the 80s that... Um, I think a lot of this can probably be traced to, there were a lot of books that were published, you know, that people started thinking more about uh, what was going on behind this veil, you know, that you couldn't see of reality and the ever after. And um, yeah, I, there was a book by an author named Frank Peretti called This Present Darkness. And that was one of the first books, I think, that really uh, popularized the notion of uh, what was happening in the spiritual realms um, and that it was right here, you know, and that there were angels and demons hiding in the corners of your room or possibly fighting right in front of you and you couldn't see it for your soul. So there was this kind of thing. And it was a very popular book. Millions, millions of, of this book has been um, sold. And it really, I think, made a huge difference on probably um, Generation X in, in the 80s, I would say, um, yeah, as teenagers in the evangelical church. Wow. So you believed, you, you know, you believed basically as a child that there were demons and angels in the room with you battling for dominion over your soul. Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. And I remember, you know, my parents, they, they were very um, worldly in spite of this. Uh, they, had, they were very worldwide, I should say, in spite of um, kind of being part of this denomination. And, and having said that, they were starting to edge out of the denomination. And later on, they, they left it altogether. It was me that brought them back. It was my fault. But, <laughs> but um, they, uh, they, they basically, um, well, they, they basically, you know, taught me um, that angels and demons were real. They would take me, um, but they would take me to different places. Like I remember my parents took me on a European trip a couple of times. We'd go into these old cathedrals, that sort of thing. And I remember feeling the presence of demons in these Catholic churches because it was Catholic and not evangelical, you know, and (laughs) just feeling kind of almost these absurd reactions um, to places that were dark, you know? (laughs) Right. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So here's the so, thing. Here's what's in, you know, this is what I'm, this is what's going through my head because I'm a huge skeptic. Um, uh, you know, I, I detach myself from religion as a, you know, like a 12 or 13 year old kid or whatever. And I've never gone back and I sort of, and, and was sort of bitter about it. Or there's like an anger, I think for a lot of people who were raised in a religion or maybe, or maybe this isolates me, but I think it's probably fairly common where if you're raised with a certain dogma and then you come to find out that that dogma is really loaded with uh, a bunch of untruth and blah, 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 that you can kind of find yourself turned off by all thinking along supernatural lines. Do you know what I'm saying? You can just be like, okay, it's all hocus pocus. And I've carried that for a long time. Like, you know, show me a demon, show me an angel, show me um, some evidence rather than just giving me a book or telling me because you're a man of God, you understand this stuff. So do you follow me? Like I found myself wanting like actual hard evidence and would refuse to believe secondhand accounts and just sort of turn my mind off to any possibility of that because it just seemed crazy to me. Okay. And now only recently, um, have I started to kind of entertain the idea, uh, that there might be those realms. And, and I don't even know if, I mean, not in the traditional religious context, but just that there might be dimensions that we're not aware of beings that we're not aware of who might have some impact on our current existence. You know, it's, it's kind of like religion is removed from it entirely, but I sort of find myself thinking like, hell, I don't know, maybe like, where are you on that now? Like, do you find yourself totally pushed away from it? Or do you find yourself still with some, you know, foot in that door? Uh, that, that's a really interesting question. I think a lot of people are like you, um, when they, when you, when you've had a bad experience with a, with the religious culture, you kind of just turn your back on it. Um, for me, I, I, I certainly, I certainly can't turn my back on the idea of God. Um, granted, it, it's something I was steeped in from you know the time I was born, um, but it's certainly something that I. I reject. I can't. I, I, the idea of of being an atheist. I, I can't do that um, because there's always this question, you know. So I, I suppose I approach it in in a sense. Um, I, I you know I shudder at the word agnostic because, but you know that that's probably where I fit in a lot of ways. Although um, an agnostic, a hopeful agnostic, maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe you could say that um, I'm more Mulder than Scully, and that I want to believe. Um, but it's, it's a question, uh, for me of definitions in a lot of ways, because, because really a lot of, um, the way I was taught and some of the ideas I was taught, um, I, I think they're open to a broader interpretation than what I was 
given. Okay. So let so, me, let me elaborate. Cause I, I believe the same mm-hmm. thing. And like, like what I was saying earlier about like wanting evidence, you know, like mm-hmm. it's one thing to get like somebody, somebody writes a book and tells you, or you hear some secondhand account. Um, but it's like, show me, you know, let me see something. Mm-hmm. And so recently, um, you know, you go on, you know, and this is going to sound crazy, but like you go on the internet and you read these, um, you know, message boards for people who are ingesting these like hardcore hallucinogens. And mm-hmm. you start to see that there are like common themes. Like people are seeing like, like, you know, different people who aren't in the same room with each other across cultures sure. are seeing like sure. beings and like little like elves and stuff. And it's like, it's, very, <laughs> right, right, right. it's very super odd, but yeah. I don't want to be pompous and say, Oh, you guys are all just crazy. And I mean, what do I know? Right. You know, and I think when you talk well, about trying to define agnosticism or atheism within yourself, like, like, I think where I'm at is just, I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. Right. Right. It, it's hard for me to be absolute on anything anymore. Um, certainly I want to have faith, but faith is, um, you can't have faith without doubt. I think, um, Kierkegaard said that, <laughs> but, but I think there's some truth to that. Um, because faith in a way is a choice. Um, but certainly having hundred percent faith is no longer faith that becomes certainty. And that kind of negates the definition of faith in the first place. Um, but, but conversely, I, I think doubt is the same, has the same problem. If you have absolute doubt, then there's also certainty there, um, which takes away from that definition. Um, so it's, it's kind of a weird sort of problem that we find ourselves in because I think so many of us, um, do recognize that there is, um, something spiritual and something that we want to reach toward that, that isn't necessarily, um, seen plainly in front of us. Um, but you know, it, I, it's interesting. You said, you know, leaving the church, it left a bad taste in your mouth, that sort of thing. You just wanted to push it all away. I mean, I kind of, and I totally understand that. I, I see that a lot with people. Um, but I think in a sense too, it's kind of like giving up on TV cause you watch too much Jerry Springer. You know what I mean? Like there, there's different ways to, to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I was yeah. just, it, like there's a, you know, I think spirit, and I hate to use these words because they're so uh, overused to the point of seeming hackneyed or something, but it's like spirituality and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, trying to assess uh, deeper levels of consciousness and trying to figure out what's going on in a grand sense. Mm-hmm. Like those are all noble pursuits. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that, you know, those pursuits are sort of riddled with opportunists and dogmas and people who are trying to make money off of people's, uh, need for certainty or, or desire for, you know, a, a sense of their place in the universe or whatever it is. You know, I just think religions are often really right. corrupt and, um, I tend to take a more individualist tack and I wish that I spent more time like pursuing it seriously or reading about it seriously or being more disciplined in my approach because like it, it's fairly important. You know, it's at the top of the list. I think of things that are important in life is, um, at, right. least, at least having something. And I don't know what that is. Like, is it meditation? Right. Is it practicing something? Is it going to church? Is it volunteering? Right. Like, how does it manifest in your life? Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've, one thing I've learned through this process is um, that, you know, church is a culture. And um, that's not the same thing as, as looking into what you're talking about. Um, some people seem to be able to do it. Uh, for me, uh, it basically is just subscribing to a culture, though, and, and that um, that influences a lot of uh, different things about the way people live their lives, that sort of thing. But is that an honest, 
search for what you're talking about. And, and my, my conclusion has been that the two are separate. Now, they, they can certainly happen in tandem. Um, for me, I needed to step back um, and kind of just look at that and, and, and look for some things on my own for a while. Um, it's not to say that I've given up on church. Um, you know, that, that's, I think that there's a lot of good that can come from the church community, uh, especially when they're focused on helping the community, that sort of thing. Um, but as far as, you know, searching for God, whatever God means to you, um, or, you know, basically a spiritual side of things, um, you know, that, that has to be individual, there's, there's no other way to do it. I so. think so. And I, th- I think, too, like I get very pissed off and um, frustrated with what I consider to be – and, like, again, this sounds like – I don't want to sound like a pompous asshole, but um, <laughs> I also think there's a – you have to draw a line sometimes. Like there's just such childish interpretations of this that are obviously so humanistic um, in their mm-hmm. creation. And it's like the God is a Superman yeah. and he's got a beard and he's a white dude. And it's like you got to be kidding me. Like – we need to, right. you know, that, that to me seems like uh, a child story and I find myself rapidly impatient with anybody who entertains any of that stuff. And I also think that yeah. because if you don't, if you start from a position of certainty, like you were saying, and you don't start from a position of humility and saying, well, I don't really know. Um, you, you know, when you have like that superhero God, like the God who lives mm-hmm. in the sky and knows everything and is watching everything and you have his private telephone number and you have the one book and all that kind of stuff. It's a total conversation killer. It, it completely crushes dialogue past a certain point because yeah. when, you, when you have access to a superhero, you know, there's no need to continue to the talk, you know? Right, right, right. And, That's true. I don't know. It just, it's frustrating. So um, let's turn to a more interesting topic or a more interesting aspect of this. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and and let's talk, let's talk about like uh, being an adolescent, and you know you sort of touched mm-hmm. on this a little bit, but like when when you're raised in a religious culture, like sex is such a big issue. So yeah, talk about like what happens as you come of age in this culture, and as you start to um, develop and want to meet boys and whatnot. Like, how did you handle all that? Yeah, it, it's such a funny thing. Um, I, I really think that what happens is that um, when teenagers can't have sex, you find the substitutions. So you may not be um, actually having sex, but you really are. Like it's a very Clintonian definition. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and that that meshes very well with a lot of um, other ways that we look at life um, coming out of the evangelical world. Um, we have Christian rock. We have Christian yoga, Christian books, Christian schools, Christian movies, all these things that are kind of um, a substitution, if you will, of um, the secular version. So it's kind of like um, taking something that uh, is real and then making an interesting sort of uh, copy of it. So, um, so I, I kind of see sex in that way as far as um, what happened as far as being an adolescent growing up in that. Um, so you just kind of learn these substitutions. And it, it, I think, um, yeah, I think it, it kind of has an interesting outcome. I mean, my husband and I, we have um, been together a very long time. That's all, that's all in the book. But basically, uh, we met when we were 11. We started dating when we were 14. We got married at 19. Um, had, and have been together ever since. But um, one thing that's been really interesting, um, you know, coming through all of this and kind of coming to uh, maybe coming of age um, through all of this is that we both had to find our own way and, and learn um, suddenly how to be real 
um, and maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking of Velveteen Rabbit here, <laughs> but but there had to be there had to be almost um, kind of a, an honest uh, coming out for both of us. So it was an interesting sort of thing when that happened. It really almost tore the two of us apart because we had to find that out for ourselves. So you had to find out what you know, for yourselves. I think what life was about for each of us. Um, so, so we had, they, I mean, a lot, a big reason we got married was so that we could officially have sex. I mean, there's no question, <laughs> you know, um, and stop feeling guilty for going and making out, you know, in the <laughs> backwoods in some uh, steamy car, you know, but, um, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's certainly true. It was true for us. And I know it's true for other people that I know that came out of that. Um, you know, so, so when you're getting married for that reason, you know, that <laughs> there are some issues there and some issues you have to work through. Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, I just remember growing up Catholic or, you know, having that sort of thing implanted in my head and it makes you terrified of it. You're terrified of sex yeah. when you're a kid. You're an adolescent. You're like, yeah. oh, God, what an awful thing to do to a child. I mean, I know obviously you don't want to encourage promiscuity right. past a certain point. There has to be some sense involved. But, you know, right. it's, a, it's a denial of such a fundamental um, fundamental part of human life and... I don't know. It just I, you can hear the anger in my voice now. I think it's so silly. I'm I'm <laughs> sad and mad that it was ever done to me. <laughs> right, right. There there's something you have to do to kind of learn how to be a human uh coming out of that. And you know, and once you can have sex and you're married and all this sort of thing, you just kind of take a step and go step back and say, "Okay, wait a minute. Now what?" You know, it's <laughs> because it's been this huge secret, you know, that that nobody's allowed to do and it's you know, and really it I mean, it's a big deal, but it's it's also not that big of a deal. Right. <laughs> so um, there's kind of an interesting thing that has to take place, I think, in your head once you do that. So, um, or once you've been through that. So okay, so you know, you get through that, and um, I don't know, like what what is next? Like, I guess you just go on to a, a more adult spiritual pursuit, and you found right. you, you find right. yourself. <laughs> You find yourself right. suddenly. In- suddenly, you're not focusing your sexual energy on God anymore. I mean, <laughs> I think it's what it comes down to. Because I think as a teenager, that's really where it's focused. And I think that probably that's where a lot of um, churches lose people. Honestly, um, I could be totally wrong saying no. that. But <laughs> no, it's like the military. They're trying but- to get you before you're an adult. You know, that's when they get their hooks in you. It's because. You right. Know, that's when you're right. most impressionable, and then you know, if it, once once someone's an adult, it's it's rare that I think they they go and find God. Stuff has to go very wrong. Like what what's the old saying? Mm-hmm. Like nobody converts on prom night, you know. <laughs> that's true. That's um, true. Maybe but, the day after. Right, but you know, like I guess, like you know, you you get out of your adolescence, you get married. I guess as you're still an adolescent, uh, and then at mm-hmm. what point did you feel like? Um, you had a, sen- a a real sense of separation, but also a groundedness. Like, or do you yet? Well, well, that's a very good question. You know, I'll never forget. There, I, I can point to a couple uh, couple of instances, and, and one big one was. Um, yeah, I was kind of getting fed up with. I was going to a Christian university, um, and, and it was a great university. I mean, and the people there are wonderful and stuff. But you know, it had a culture where you were constantly going to chapel, constantly going to church, and constantly listening to other people tell you how it is. And and as if that is your form of worship, so to speak, that that is the way that you find God. And um, basically, I remember um, it was it was the day the Oklahoma City bombing happened, and um, we all heard that explosion at the school because we were about ten miles from there. And um, 
we, you know, nobody knew what it was. We thought it might be a sonic boom or something like that. Um, so we kind of just continued along. We went to our first class, and then we all ended up in chapel where it was announced what happened. Uh, and they told us what was happening, that basically there were people who um, were dying and needed help, and this building had exploded, and it was just mayhem down there, and that they needed um, they needed supplies, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, a lot of us were about ready to get up and, and see what we could do to go help. Um, but instead, what they told us was that um, they'd sent a few nursing students down, but the rest of us should all just sit where we were and sit back because we had a guest speaker that day, and boy, were we in for a treat. I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> um, business as usual, and uh, basically sit down and feed your souls instead of help these people who needed help. And I think, I, I'm sure they didn't mean it in that way, but that's how it came off, and it just, I'll, I'll never forget, it just rubbed me wrong. It's just like, okay, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this. It was like this kind of self-glut on, um, you know, basically trying to feed who you were spiritually, but it wasn't doing anything. It was completely empty. So, Right, right, anyway. right. Just kind of yeah. like... Yeah, so I remember... Go ahead. Yeah, I just walked away feeling very disgusted from that. So. And what a weird time to be in Oklahoma City, or near Oklahoma City at least. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, so when did you weird. did you go down there afterwards? I mean, did you find your way down there eventually? Um, we well, what happened was they actually within I can't remember how long it took, but they ended up putting the play after the initial um, the initial triage. Uh, they put it under martial law, so you weren't actually allowed in there after a while. So yeah, it was weird. I, I tend to find my way to tragedies. I was in the vicinity of the Columbine shooting too. That's a whole other story. But I mean, it's like April is a very dark month for me. No, you know, I <laughs> was in uh, I was in Boulder. Yeah. I was in Boulder when Columbine happened, and I'll never forget where okay. I was. It was one of those moments where you remember where you were. You know, at least yeah. you were in Colorado. But I was sitting at a coffee shop outside, reading a book, and people started talking about mm-hmm. it around me, and I was like, "What?" And then I remember driving home and turning the radio on, and it was like all over the radio, but. Uh, it's a very surreal feeling. I was a young life leader at the time, actually, at that school. I mean, I should say an assistant young life leader. Um, so those were actually some of my students there. So it was a very weird um, time. I, I was in my desk at work. And wait, were you at training. Columbine? Uh, well, I was working with those kids, Columbine kids. Uh, so I wasn't okay. at the school. Okay. No, but my friend, my friend who was the leader of that group, um, his name is Kevin Parker. He's actually a, a rep up in Washington now, but he. Um, he was actually in the school when it happened. So, um, yeah, it was very, you know, it, I remember watching it for almost five minutes before it even occurred to me, oh, my God, these are my kids, you know. <laughs> so, you know, so we we went down there immediately, you know, of course, and that night um, hung out with, you know, quite a few of them, about 100 of them or so were clustered at our um, at our meeting point. So, yeah, it was a very interesting time. But anyway, that, I've gotten off topic, but... <laughs> Yeah. Well, but you know, it's kind of, I mean, it kind of brings it back around a little bit towards like religion and questions of morality and questions of ultimate, um, dimensions or whatever. But when you think about something like Columbine or you think about Oklahoma city or these tragedies that you've borne witness to, um, both like when you're in the height of your, uh, evangelical phase or when you're coming out of it, regardless of where it happens, um, like how do you, or I guess, I guess the question is where you are now looking back and you see these mm-hmm. kinds of things. Do you believe in evil? 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you take the view that there's actual evil in the world? If you've decided that maybe Mm -hmm. there aren't demons and angels vying for your spirit in the room, like, how do you, how do you process Mm -hmm. that part of humanity and our behavior? That's a good question. I mean, certainly, certainly humanity is capable of what um, one might call evil. Um, you know, I, I look back at the genocides, for example. Um, you know, it's been a lot of studies that Rwandan genocide um, in the 90s, and um, that's something that you know you just look at these people. They're just they were just ordinary people, and suddenly they just all turned on their neighbors. And you know, next thing you know, you've got almost 800,000 people dead, you know, at the hands of their neighbors. And um, certainly, and unfortunately, that's not an isolated event. Um, I I think people can switch that way. And I I think that, um, but but it must, I'm not sure if it's actual evil. That's a a really good question. Is that demon influenced? Is that something supernatural going on there? I can't answer that. But certainly, um, certainly human nature seems to devolve to that um, in certain circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I find myself thinking like, you know, we all have it, but we all have both good and evil in us. I, that's the, I guess like mm-hmm. what I kind of tend to subscribe to. And some people, you know, for whatever reason go their different ways, but then you think about like pedophiles and like super evil stuff that happens and mm-hmm. you just, right. You know, sometimes you just wonder like, how the hell does this even like unfold in the world? And yeah, it can get tricky, yeah. you know, it can get tricky. It- and, and I don't know if I, if I have any firm answers there, you know? I don't have an answer either. I, it it certainly is what I would call evil in many cases. Um, it, it feels evil. Yeah. Um, but as, it's interesting, though. I mean, uh, boy, the whole question of evil, the devil and hell and all those things. I mean, I, I don't believe in hell anymore. And, and I actually um, would take the position that that's a biblical stance. Um, I think that it's been misinterpreted. Um, but um, I, I, I'm... As an adult, I'm much more concerned about hell on earth, you know, the hell of, that my neighbor is going right, through, um, right. than, than going to this fiery place. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's like, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a emergent movement pastor, Rob Bell, who said something along the lines of, um, you know, if you were in a marriage and um, you were told that you have to love your husband or go to hell, is that really a valid reason to love your husband. And I, I feel the same way with, with God. I mean, if, if there's a God um, and, you know, you, you're told that uh, if you don't love God that you're going to go to hell, that's, a, that's just a, something's wrong with that. Yeah, of so, course. It's a brutal God. And, yeah. like, frankly, if there is a God in any way, like the God but like demonstrably is uh, uninterested in this place, you know, at least like a, at the level of like right. our pain and suffering, you know, like, right. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very detached God or it's a God that like we can't grasp in our human way. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Prayer doesn't seem to change God so much as it does the prayer. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, you talked about, and like, you know, this gets to an interesting point too. And this also makes me bristle. Um, yeah. And, but in a writerly way, because I think, you mm-hmm. know, the, to be fair, uh, there is a lot in religion um, that is uh, worthwhile. There's a lot of great you yeah. know, spiritual teachings that carry, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, for example, is, you know, I think yep. a totally worthwhile thing to consider. Um, but what I mm-hmm. find myself getting frustrated with, and, uh, you know, I think maybe this is because I'm a writer, or at least partially, um, or the fact that I'm a writer exacerbates it is mm-hmm. how infantile the interpretations of these teachings can sometimes be and then how twisted they can become. 
And yes. do you know what I'm saying? Like, like, absolutely. I, you, you just said something a moment ago that sparked this in my head and now it's already slipped out of my brain. But, um, you know, there are plenty of examples of things that people say or things that Jesus supposedly said. And you, like, for instance, okay, the resurrection, um, mm-hmm. you know, they talk about Jesus resurrecting and the, uh, popular, I think religious interpretation is that his body actually floated up from this rock. And, you know, it's like, I, I just was mm-hmm. in Jerusalem briefly and I went to, um, the church of the Holy Sepulcher and I got to see the supposed slab mm-hmm. of rock where they laid Jesus's body. And I, you know, I stood there looking at it and mm. and people are getting down on their knees and kissing this thing and i'm just thinking to myself like what the like this is just a slab of rock like there's no way this is the actual slab of rock and i i start to think about resurrection and like it it, it seems ob- obnoxious to think that his body floated into the sky like and very childish mm. um but I, <laughs> I think i mean you know but then, right, like you right. know but it seems to me that like you know everything is circular we're all made mm-hmm. of the same stuff you can't, energy is neither created nor destroyed. Like that's mm-hmm. what he meant, right? Or am I pompous to think that I understand better? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I know I wasn't there. I can't tell you. <laughs> um, I, I suppose it, it really, you know, it, it depends on uh, how, how much um, uh, disbelief you're ready to suspend or willing to suspend. <laughs> well, but I, I, I guess yeah. what I'm trying to yeah. drive at too is that like I wish that – I guess I might just wish for better teachers and interpreters. It's like mm-hmm. – you know, a lot of yeah. what I think a lot yeah. of what marginalizes religion these days is a how entrenched it is in its own dogma and how inflexible it yeah. is. And then, yeah, well, look, we we saw this in the election, didn't we? I mean, this was a really interesting kind of thing that was happening with with the right calling the left immoral, um, based on basically a couple of principles that they would have called uh, baby killing and uh, gays getting married. And you know, I, I think that those both seem so cut and dry to um, certain people within that group, but neither are actually defined in the Bible adequately, in my opinion. So um, it's very interesting, and at the same time, overlooking other things that I would call immoral, um, you know, along the lines of uh, war and, um, you know, uh, universal health care, that sort of, (laughs) not not instigating universal health care, that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's a very interesting sort of um, problem where you have people interpreting things um, as if they are cut and dry, and they're not. They're just simply not. Mm. So, uh, you know, and even, even homosexuality in the Bible is, is I don't believe, um, a cut and dry interpretation. And I know people will take me to task on that. But um, there are basically seven places in the Bible where it's mentioned, and most of them are not actually translated from a word that says homosexual. But somehow in English, that's what's ending up. So um, it's it's kind of a, a weird sort of thing that's happened through the culture of the church over the years, um, where even, you know, their, their own text is uh, possibly being misinterpreted. So, <laughs> and, cer- and certainly summarized very neatly and cleanly, where, it, where I don't believe it, it really is. Yeah. So. Well, so, and you, you bring up politics, and like, I don't want to go too far off into that realm, but I'm interested because they are related. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the, when you started to evolve in your feelings, uh, you know, about the church and whatnot, like, did your politics evolve? Yeah, certainly. Big time. Certainly. Because like, you know, I feel like people have formative experiences when they are, uh, young. And I think most people's political orientation somehow solidifies, mostly solidifies when they're like, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, Mm -hmm. that's what the way it looks to me. 
Um, mm-hmm. Did you find yourself going through maybe a more radical transformation on that front than most people do, or is that a reach? That's probably true. Um, you know, I I was raised, uh, you know, to to be a Republican basically, and you know, I've now changed my voting registration to Democrat. You know, and and you know, just because you know, so I can vote in the primary. <laughs> but um, you know, do I really fit in either? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, but you know, I I think that politics, um, boy, I I think really I, I base a lot of it on. Um, a lot of how we've evolved with the church as well. I mean, I look at the church now. Churches should be the tightest run charity organizations out there. I mean, if they're actually doing what Jesus taught, um, then let's get out there and actually make a difference in the society around you and, you know, stop funneling money into the mega churches and actually put it to use, feed people, clothe people. Um, I mean, those were Jesus' own words. You know, he said, um, you know, you know, the first commandment is to love God. The second is to love your neighbor. And, you know, beyond that, there really isn't any law. And um, we've turned it back into religion as an evangelical culture and um, taken away from the simplicity of that. And, um, you know, as far as as far as that influences my politics, I mean, I, I look at um, I look at taking care of your neighbor as being primary. And somehow um, what I'm seeing is, you know, there's well, there's a lot of a lot of capitalism <laughs> going on in that, in that, on that right side. And, um, it, it bothers me a little, not that the left is perfect either, but, um, you know, it, for me, it's, it's more of a matter of trying to, um, make things a little more accessible to people that need it. Yeah. Well, and what about yeah. like, and maybe you don't know this scripture as well, but you know, I think you probably know it better than I do, but like, I, I was thinking about this through, um, you know, over the past year, because all these issues have been, you know, sort of beaten to death in the media, but, why? Mm-hmm. Why did Jesus get crucified? Like, what was the re- reason? He, just because he was getting a following? It was blasphemy. He was. He basically had. Um, he'd been reported to be saying that he is God. Okay. So okay, because I have this theory, and it's based on nothing. You ready? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I think it's because he was teaching um, that the rich should give their money to the poor, and that the meek yeah, shall yeah, inherit the earth. And I think yeah. all the all the especially in those times, you know, all these like you know, uh, extremely wealthy pharaohs or whatever were just like, wait a minute, this guy's starting to get a crowd going out there. We we can't have this. Is that right? Mm-hmm. It's just money. I, I think you're probably right. I, I think Jesus would do very poorly at the polls today. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, you're probably right. It, it was threatening. That's a very threatening stance to take. And to say that religion is not important anymore, and that's basically what he was saying. He was calling the religious leaders hypocrites. Um, he was encouraging people to kind of stay out of politics in a way, um, you know, render unto Caesar what Caesar's. Um, but at the same time, he, he was, you know, going to churches, overturning tables and, you know, really kind of stirring things up. So, yeah, you're, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure it had to do with money. <laughs> Yeah, and he was, and I just I see him as this kind of like feral hippie, but maybe that's just me because that's like my little version of him as a Superman. I want him to be. Yeah, he was much cooler. He's much cooler than he gets credit for. That's what I think. I think he was way cooler than he gets credit for, and I think it's really sad what we've turned him into. I mean, look, my my church said drinking wine was a sin, but here you have a man who uh, turned water into wine, and not at the beginning of the wedding; it was at the end, right when they were running out of the wine. So they they were already pretty toasty, right? Right. See? So he was giving them more wine. Yeah, yeah. So I, like I, I think I think the uh, the real Jesus uh, was probably a pretty capital guy. 
I like him. I like Jesus. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. It's I'm, like, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I really am. It's the other people that so. I have a problem with. Um, right. So what's exactly. next for you? What like what's going on with you? Uh, you? You have this book. It's in existence. Um, it's rolling out into the world. You're going to go on a book tour. Like what's going to happen? Yeah, I hope to do a book tour. Um, certainly, I'm. I'm very excited. I'm. You know, I'm gearing up for. I'm game for anything at this point. <laughs> okay. And then what about? Uh, are you worried about uh, backlash from the evangelical people? Are you expecting people to send you emails and to contest your assertions? And do you have any? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I do expect the evangelical church, um, the larger evangelical church, to probably kind of write it off or be angry about it. Um, on the other hand, I think that there are a lot of evangelicals that will get it, because there are a lot of smart people in the evangelical church that uh, do realize um, that there are some problems with the church. Um, certainly people um, over the years are leaving the church, and that um, is showing up in numbers. And, um, you know, I, uh, my book is basically uh, about the why I did anyway. Um, so it, I think that um, I think it could go, uh, it probably will go both ways is my guess. So, and there is a, there is a large kind of movement coming out of the evangelical church too. I think I alluded to earlier called the emergent movement. And it's, um, it's basically based on a conversation about all of this. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what is true? What, what can we believe? What are the, what are the, um, different interpretations people have and taking a step back and looking at it more of how this, um, you know, what, what's happened over the years here, um, and opening it up to conversation. Mm. So taking away the dogma of it. So, so what about other writing projects? Are you writing anything else? Or are you going to do this book? Oh, tour? yeah. Oh, you are. So it's absolutely. all it's Yeah, happening. absolutely. I'm always working on something. Always working on something. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of secret skunk works right now. But um, certainly I am working on Nonfiction? Anyway. What is yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's fiction. Yeah, it's fiction. Novel? So, I'm just going to try It's to, a novel. It's a novel. Okay. And then what? there's yeah. nothing else you can tell me. It's all under wraps. <laughs> it is. It is. I'm not quite ready to talk about it, but yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, suffice it to say, it kind of has to do with um, more of an entrepreneurial take on. Uh, well, I, it, it's more about an entrepreneur's struggle during the recession, I should say. So okay, okay. Well, there we go. I got a little different topic. That's a good interview. See, I'm a good interview. I got a little bit out of you. A little more than you were comfortable sharing. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Well, listen. I'm really happy for you. I. Uh, I congratulate you on the publication of Devangelical, and I wish you luck with it. And I hope that you know uh, it sells 1.5 million copies. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. There you go. That is it. That is the show. That is Erica Ray. Go get her memoir. It is called Devangelical. It is available now from Emergency Press. You can pre-order it right this instant, right this very moment. And the official pub date is December 11th, 2012. December 11th, 2012. You can find Erica online at devangelical.com. She's on the Facebook and she's also on the Twitter at Erica Ray. Thanks as always to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, hey, do I need to tell you all this other business about uh, this program and its website and the official app? I do that every episode. I think I'm tired of doing that after 125 and now uh, 126 episodes. I think maybe... I'm going to stop doing that. You can find the show on the web. You can find it on Twitter. There's an app. It's all free. You know the drill. Uh, except for the premium content, which is not free, but is, in fact, dirt cheap. It's like $3 a month. So how does that sound? How, do, uh, you know, how is that for a uh, persuasive sales pitch? 
Uh, it is now almost December. We are approaching December. We are on the cusp. December, I think, is a weird month. Uh, that's how it feels. That's how, that's how I uh, perceive it. It's like the part of the year where the holidays are here or they're almost here. They are upon us. The year's almost over. Everyone's tired. Everyone is increasingly mentally disengaged. And it's like, let's just get it over with. Let's just do this. Let's go. Let's move through it. 2012 is now essentially gone. Let's just accept it and uh, move on. Let's transition. Let us uh, detach ourselves. Please remember that Marcel Duchamp died of prostate cancer and that Thomas Hardy's father was a stonemason. That is all for now. That is everything I've got. That is my energy. I have laid it out on the table. I hope you enjoyed listening. Did you enjoy this? If you did enjoy this, please tell people. Please tweet about it. Uh, If you would like, you can strip naked and run out into the middle of a freeway or a busy intersection and scream the name of this program repeatedly until the media arrives. Do you understand me? Do you understand me? Are my demands unreasonable? Have I made demands? Are they unreasonable? Are they? Are they? Are they? Are they?